Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Delighted to say that I am rejoined here on Luck on Sunday because he came in once last season by a man who I've, I wanted to delve deeper into because he's had such a, an interesting life and, and story. He started off as a, a general practitioner after graduating from Cambridge and turned his attention to a very successful healthcare business from which he was chief executive for many years. He has now stepped slightly sideways to be chairman of that company, which has afforded him more time to train racehorses. And why not? Because what began as a hobby, and very much a hobby, training just a dozen horses or so, has now burgeoned. Not to the extent that he's got 100, 100 plus horses, <coughs> maybe 40 or 50. He's clearing his throat. But he's a modest man. He, he may as well. He is currently lying second in the Trainers' Championship. He is, of course, Dr Richard Newland. Uh, Richard, good morning. Nick, good morning to you too. And I, I said it did genuinely start as a hobby, this, didn't it? Absolutely it did. Absolutely it did. It's just a complete passion. I was a sort of racing nut uh, at a, a young age, about 18, 19, got into racing, started going to Cheltenham and so on, and um, got very, very interested in, in the form and so on. And I didn't, even, I didn't ride, I wasn't horsey. My wife uh, made me touch a horse for the first time, when we, you know, literally. <laughs> and then I learned to ride with her and learned to, with my children growing up. And then after a while, and, you know, when you could afford it, started owning bits of horses. And uh, eventually we, we, we had some stables and some land. I said, I'd love to have a go at this training business. See if we could just get the idea was to get a permit, mm. train three or four horses, which is how we started in 2006. Um, and funny enough, that to be, get the permit is uh, extremely difficult. We've got a lot of steps to do, which is why it's easy for people, for example, if you do point to pointing, anyone can just do point to pointing yeah. the amateur. But if you want to do it under, under rules, which is really what I wanted to do, that you, you have to go through all the steps, you've got to have the approved facilities, you had to, had to go on the new market courses, um, you had to, get, had to get an MBQ3 and race or sustainable management, and quite a lot of investment, obviously, which you couldn't really justify for three or four horses. But the irony is that the, the step to move from three or four of your own to training 150 is really easy. It, because you'll be regulated, really, to the same level for three or four horses as you yeah. are if you have 200. So I, what happened is we had great success in that first season and I just changed the license or applied to change the license to a full license from a permit. Um, because because at, at that stage, my cousin, Chris, who's uh, been a great supporter and we're close and I couldn't actually even, as a permit, you could only train for, you know, your immediate family. You couldn't, I couldn't even train one in his name. So um, we made that change and then obviously we just gradually built it up over the years and fortunate to have good success. And everyone always says, you know, Dr. Newland started off as a GP, etc. Yeah. Turned turned to, to training. It wasn't quite as straightforward as that, was it? It was a good story when you won the Grand National. It was GP trains winner of Grand National, but it, 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 the transition has been more complex than that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is it is it is quite a journey. In fact, I was a full time general practitioner, yeah. but I'd already changed uh, to running, getting involved in the commercial side of healthcare. I've always worked in healthcare. Um, but I've been involved in setting up a number of healthcare businesses. So I was doing less and less doctoring independently of um, the training. So which, which gave me more time because if, if you're in, if you, if I was, you know, trying to do it around GP surgeries, that'd be pretty tough, I think. Did you enjoy being a GP? Yeah, yeah, I did. I wasn't, I wasn't unhappy at all uh, doing it. I mean, you, a lot of my friends now who, oh, I've still got obviously lots of medical friends, uh, and um, quite a few of them have had enough and are planning their retirements and so on. I, I, I um, enjoyed it, but I also enjoyed moving on to do different things as well. Uh, and I suppose my forte has been sort of in the, in the more commercial side, setting things up, setting businesses up and with teams of people and so on. Because am I right, you had an idea when you were a GP, you realised there was a deficiency in the, 
in the nursing home sector, essentially, in the care home sector, and people making difficult decisions about where their loved ones would, would go if they needed to, to, to have full-time residential care. Yeah, I, was, well, I suppose CHS Healthcare, which is where I'm, I'm chairman of now, which is my, sort of, I guess, biggest biggest business, although I've been involved in other things too, um, set it up with one person yeah. in uh, 2006 to help people choose nursing homes and, and care homes and so on. Uh, we employ over 300 today. And, um, you know, um, I've, we have an investor who bought a third of the company um, January 18, which has made a big difference to us and um, to Laura, my wife and I, and, to, and we've invested some of that money in terms of building this new yard we're in now and so on. So, I mean, I'm very proud of that. I mean, it's an incredible success story. Um, obviously, nothing to do with racing. Yeah. But, but I, just reading about it, it sort of struck me as that you're somebody with that restless mind, that even when you were a very busy doctor, you were thinking about, oh, what's, what's wrong there? What can I do to help that? What, what, how, could I, how can I make this a success? How, is there a gap there in the market that I can exploit? Is that you as a person? Yes, and also, you know, I'm, I suppose I was quite driven to, to achieve. And, and, and um, I, you know, I think if, if you want to be successful commercially, you've got to seek to do it. You know, I, I specifically knew that I wanted to set something up, so I was then looking for the opportunities. And then if you start looking, you might find them. And, and then, but also most, as anyone who's worked in business knows, that you, the idea is only a small part of it, really. Uh, you know, that you, good to have a nice idea, but it's not about just finding a magical idea. It's about actually executing, putting yeah. the team together, working with it. And you start often in, in these business ideas, you start thinking, doing, you're going to make all your money doing this, but actually a little while later you're doing that. Uh, but you've got to be in it to win it. What's been the what's been the most successful venture that you've you, you've undertaken? It, was it the was it the care home venture or, or something subsequent? Probably that um, set up a uh, an anorexia centre, which became the um, the the largest independent inpatient treatment unit yeah. for young people with anorexia in the country, with a CQC Care Quality Commission uh, uh, regulator, our regulators' uh, assessment of outstanding which is quite unusual in that sector, that, but that business has been sold now. Uh, but st and still doing well, I'm pleased to, pleased to report. And do you take greater satisfaction from something where you can meaningfully see the results, see the, the fruits of, of the labour that your team have put in? I, I love setting things up. We all love success, uh, uh, but I love working with teams of people. Recruiting teams of people. My my secret weapon, really, in, in business is that I'm lucky that my wife is a brilliant HR uh, specialist, in particularly in recruitment, doing psychometric interviews and so on. And our best, all my business has been pretty people rich, a lot, a lot of people. And the key thing is to get the right people in your team if you can, and then look after them well and work with them. And, and actually, it's no different with the racing. In the sense, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky I've got a great assistant trainer, uh, Rod Tro, who, who works part-time in the racing, but we, we're great mates, really. And uh, we share up some of the responsibilities. But I've recruited recently a new yard manager, Wayne Jones, who's a fantastic asset now, as we've got bigger. New secretary, new, and, and, you know, and the same. And the same, we, would, we also do telephone psychometric interviews and some of the staff that come and join us as... Um, stable lads and lasses. That is interesting, and yeah. I would imagine there aren't too many trainers who would deploy HR methods from outside the industry yeah. to, to the systems within it. I'm going to say, would you, would you advocate that more people operate along those lines? But I imagine the answer would be, no, I want to do it all myself. <laughs> Well, I, I just say, look, we're just using that we're lucky enough in the sense that we got those commercial skills, Laura and I, between us, so mm. that we, we, we're going to try and use them to get the best team we can. So, um, yeah, other people have other strengths that they know that bring to the table. And when you began training under a permit, I mean, you had instant and high profile success. Overstrand won the big hurdle over Christmas time at Sandown Park was then the William Hill handicap hurdle which was a big race in those days and Burnt Oak Boy in the Coral Cup in the same season was just ridiculously impressive he'd won a prep race for you and you, you, you'd taken him from a, a, a zero who'd, who'd lost his last 33 races to a, a Cheltenham Festival hero and everyone's saying well how is this guy doing this so what was the secret to your success early? Um, well first of all we didn't know what to expect um, so when, when I had our first um, First runner, three horse, a little horse called Excellence, who I'd owned, and Philip Hobbs had trained him. And he lost his way a little bit, having been very successful. Philip won 10 races with him. Um, and when, when we got him and ran the first, I do remember thinking genuinely, I, I must run this horse quickly because um, while Philip's training is still in him, because yeah. we didn't know what was going to happen. So it was wonderfully exciting to see how it did happen. But I guess the, 
one thing that hasn't changed for me is that the, the, the two horses you mentioned, Overstrand and Burnt Oak Boy, have both shown good ability, but they've both kind of lost their way. And they, um, we identified them, or I identified them as horses that would be interesting buyers. That we know that the, the raw ability is there, have they lost it forever yeah. or could it come back? And both of them fitted that bracket. So they were both £10,000 purchases and they both went over 100000 in their first season. So it was, it, and that gives you confidence to start the, well, we're doing something right here. So presumably, or I can presume, that these were two horses who came to you with physical ailments or aches and pains or something you had to iron out. Was, did anything manifest itself, obviously, or not? Um... They, uh, no, no, I wouldn't say it was that particularly. I just think they both went through the sale ring. Um, I think they were just in yards that weren't doing particularly well at the time, but actually they were showing glimmers of ability within it, yeah. which is really, I guess, what I'm looking for. Because, you know, um, so they weren't, they weren't actually running terribly, but they were just weren't not running to the level that they had been. And, of course, the lucky thing, if you, get, if you do get a horse and turn around like that, it's probably well handicapped as well. So, and if you get so... If you put all that together, uh, it may not work, but if it does work, you can get a, an affordable mm -hmm. horse, well handicapped, that, to, capable of a, a good standard. You obviously have to get them mentally in the right place. And you, yeah. you said you you've said that you free range train, <laughs> yeah. and you you, yeah. you give them a lot of time out, yeah. which yeah. a lot of trainers say. In fairness, is that something you still you still a go by? Absolutely, we do. Uh, believe it quite passionately that. It's not just, we get them super, super fit, we hope, uh, but at the same time, we have a lot of turnout. And we've just, uh, as you know, moved to this new yard. Um, we've got 100, 120 acres there. We're, a lot of time's been spent building. We've got paddocks now scattered all around so that all these horses are sent, uh, turn out in pairs most of the day when, mm. they're, not, uh, when they're not whizzing up the gallops. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Delighted to say that Richard is still with us and he's accompanied by Luck on Sunday regular Ian Bartlett. Barty, good morning. Hello. Did you enjoy that? I did, yes. Yes. Very good. Enlightening. It, it, Amazing. Cer it certainly was, and it's great to have you with us, Richard. Uh, how have you been this week? Uh, I've been well. I've, I'm disappointed. Why? Well, I'm these pastries. <laughs> Well, it's cut back, some. I'm afraid. Yeah, well, they're not as good we as they used to be. I was away than, for a few months. We can't and spend more than £4.75 on the All the nice ones have gone. I only come basket. here for breakfast and, you know. That's all we've got. That's all we've had. Richard and I haven't touched them, have we? No, we, we, we will do later, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll uh, where, where have you been? Uh, Newbury, Chelmsford. And, of course, you were the voice of Diego de Charmil as well last weekend. Yes. At Ascot, which, was, which was enjoyable. Mm. Uh, uh, yes, commentators don't tend to find that, that sort of thing enjoyable, to be honest. The, the thing, <laughs> I, the, what the the, hell is the, going the to thing do that? that struck me about it, listening back to it, was the fact that was how little time you have then after the incident has happened. For a start, it's bizarre anyway. How do you, how do you collect yourself for the end of the race? Um, or is it just muscle memory? Oh, just, just, you know, yeah, I've only got, what was it, 10 seconds from yeah. the last of the winning yeah. line there? Whatever, just hope for the best. What did you think? Uh, it's tricky. It's too difficult for a man of my um, um, mental ability to work out. It's jump racing. You know, the, if, if you go down the line of you, he should have been disqualified, mm -hmm. then you open up all sorts of other things. Do you say the start of a five furlong sprint, horse uh, drawn eight, bangs into drawn nine, but at the winning line there's a short head between them? I mean, you open up a whole can of worms. Richard? My view on the Deer de Sharma race was that very unlucky it would have been for, for Paul, because he would have had a 1-2, mm -hmm. but they both should have been disqualified, in my opinion. I agree. I mean, you can't say that Deer de Sharma jumped the fence. He didn't, really. He only half jumped it. Yeah, I mean, they were very generous in that interpretation, I think. I, I, and I, I mean, did the second actually object against the first? No. Formally, because of the... Uh, and I think that's what would have swung it. I'm sorry, not the second, the disqualified horse. Yeah. If... If, if there'd been two different trainers, imagine it was Paul's horse in second and it was my horse in first, I w I'm sure there'd been but some sort of objection. But interpret an objection the same way they, they would interpret their own inquiry. I, I'm no expert on this tour, but I'm just... From, I, appallingly unlucky it would have been, hmm. but my interpretation is they both should have been disqualified. Well, my interpretation is the same, but maybe for different reasons. Right, I yeah. think you could probably make a case that Diego de Chamel just about jumped the, the fence if you want to... If you want to say that, there's some doubt. But if you if you do say that, I just I, I'm sorry, Barty. I think if you if you commit 
such an egregious foul against your, your opponent, mm -hmm. you've got to be thrown out. Okay, yeah. You don't agree? Well, well, well I think, well, I just think, <laughs> I don't think it happens often enough. Right, to justify. To justify going into it in two, uh, to rewriting rules mm. and going into it in that great detail. Because if you, if the, um, the horse that got pushed through the wing Cape or whatever. So if you say you disqualify that because. It's taken the wrong course. It's taken the wrong, yeah, is that. <sighs> I mean, even that, I think, is a, a, a tight, slightly tricky on the basis that it's not gone outside the wing, OK? But it's gone through between the wing and the fence. Yeah, so take that to another stage of, well, OK, but That's take that to another luck. stage of a hurdle's been flattened. And going through the Yeah, going through, going through the gap of the hurdle. Yeah, but it's between That's the allowed, wings. That's allowed. Yeah, OK. The beauty of this show is that it forces us to move on. And but I'm going to have to let you have the last word. Well, quiz, quick word. What I did think is interesting is I looked at out of interest to see what's the handicapper done. Yeah, and he that, hasn't put Caitlin up. He hasn't put Caitlin up, and he's put Diego Schammel up six. So he's telling us, because we know the handicappers can assess them from that point of view, you know, when they fall in the last yeah. and the second last, they can re-handicap them. So he's telling us that Diego Schammer would have beaten Caitlin by six lengths, if you take it realistically. So in his opinion, I don't know, was that, is that the way other people saw the race? Maybe Caitlin is some sort of certainty in the valuable uh, handicap coming up in two weeks' time. Well, that's it. And whilst that is commendable in terms of trying to give the owners and, and connections of Caitlin a bit of an olive branch, it's changing the rules. it is changing the rules. And of course, I'm not sure I approve of that either because if you have a runner next time against Caitlin, which you might well do, I will do. Horse like Kay Dula, correct, might be there. There. we won it last year, exactly. Uh, then you're going to be thinking, well, hang on a minute, this thing shouldn't be six pound well in. Yeah, equally though, having been on the other side of the fence, when a horse falls two out and you get put up seven pounds, mm. um, you know, I remember um, my, my pal and assistant Rod writing in, writing to Phil Smith or something like that, giving loads of examples. When a horse looks all over the winner two out, you'd have come to them many, many, many times, and then gets beaten. Yeah. But the handicap is that you fall two out, say, oh, he would have won seven legs, and there's nothing more galling. You've won nothing, your horse may well be injured, and the handicapper puts him up to, to boot as well. So anyway, yeah. We are, how do you fancy a trip to Japan? Yeah, okay, you're paying? Yep, I'm not travelling down the uh, back. So we're all going to we're all going to go there now because thanks to our colleagues at the Japanese Racing Authority, we can show you uh, the Queen Elizabeth II Cup, which is a Grade One race for fillies and mares that took place at Kyoto earlier this morning. Uh, points of interest for you here: Asheen Murphy, champion jockey, was riding Uranus Charm. Uh, Christoph Sumio on Lucky Lilac. Yataka Taki, local hero, on Armeria Bloom. It was a full field, 18 of them. Christophe Lemaire, who's been doing so well in Japan, was riding Centelio. 11 furlongs was the distance. We'll take it from the home turn with commentary now. Up the rise they run, it's still Krakosmia leads them up from the favourite, loves only you, Centelio travels well in third, then Frontier Queen travelling nicely, followed by Salakia, then Chronogenesis, Scarlet Colour moves on, then Lucky Lilac, followed by uh, coming on the inside is Pondazan on the outside, Ameria Bloom, then Uranus Charm, Red Landini, Satono Garnet, Shadow Diva, trying to pick up on the inside, well back, Reho Romance, Gorgeous Lunch, Bright Moon and Miss Mamma Mia is still last, they've got to catch Krakosmia, the six-year-old leads out from Love's Only You, running on Frontier Queen, Scarlet Colour, Centelio back on the inside, Lucky Lilac showing a rule per turn of speed. Love's Only You might be in trouble. Satono Genesis can't come on. It's still Krakosmia. Here's Lucky Lilac. Christoph Sumior, Lucky Lilac, pierces up on the inside and goes on and gets Group 1 success. Krakosmia second, Love's Only You third. Out wider was Chronogenesis with Centelio back on the inside, Salakia. Lucky Lilac then it was that won and an amazing run, dream run up the inside. And the significance here, you, you know the colour Sunday Racing Limited who succeed all around the world. The sire of this horse is, uh, is Orfevre who was so narrowly denied under Sumior in the arc and hit the front too soon. He wasn't hitting the front too soon there, was he? A dream no. run up the inside. Yeah, it's... Uh... The most interesting point, because I know nothing about any of this horses, but to you look, do remember Old Favre because uh, you yeah. called the race. Yeah, uh, it, no, that race there, mm. 
Um, the number of runners in a Group 1 there was. Yeah, 18. It, you know, you look at that to all over Europe now in top quality yeah. flat races and there are not the number of horses. I've no idea whether they were all justified in being mm -hmm. there or if a few were flying a kite for good money or whatever. But they had a competitive Group 1 race there with 18 of them. Yeah. Yeah, when was it, um, you know, you get many eighteen months. First prize, well, one hundred and five million yen. I don't know how much that, that is, but it's probably quite a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, a lot of money. Yeah. For about fifty grand, isn't it? No, I don't. One hundred and five million. I don't know. I don't know what no, it is. No, it's, it's, it's a lot. One thing I can be assured of. Else. One thing I can be assured of is that it's more than the, the pot that was on offer yesterday at, at Wing Canton. Though that in itself mm. was a prize worth winning, particularly if you were Paul Nichols, who won it for the tenth time, courtesy of Give Me a Copper, who may be into double figures, but he is a low mileage horse, perhaps with more to offer. And this must have been a, a long time coming for owners Alex Ferguson and Jed Mason, and particularly for trainer Paul Nichols, who looked absolutely tickled after the race and joins us on the line now. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Tenth badge of beer for you. Yeah. Uh, I know it's a race you're very fond of. I know it's a day you're very fond of, yeah. but clearly yesterday, I, I, I've seen you celebrate, but that meant a lot to you. Yeah, well, you know, it was. It also had a few problems. Uh, never went to plan last year. We just had to be patient with him, and, you know, Jed's an enthusiastic guy you know and so was Alec it was just one of those good days and you know when they're patient with horses like that I kept saying to him there's a big one in him somewhere just got to wait it, it, you know it's, it's good for everyone. Did, did you always keep the faith in this horse or were you left tearing your hair out thinking is this ever going to happen? No because he'd missed a year and then last year didn't quite go to plan I actually told Jed in May that he'd win the battery rails chase funny enough <laughs> Um, it just if it, the ground was soft enough. The big thing yesterday was it rained for him. Was a big advantage to him, and it was a huge disadvantage for President Man. It just worked out right for him yesterday. And we're watching shots of you there in in the yeah. box alongside uh, alongside Sir Alex. I'm I'm surprised Sir Alex is still in one piece, Paul. Oh, well, no, we all enjoyed it. It was good good fun, and uh, you need to celebrate those wins. And I'd asked you earlier in the week when I saw you at Exeter how, how much you were targeting yesterday at Wing Canton. The day's become a, an important day for your whole team, hasn't it? Yeah, well, it, you know, it's a good course, it's good prize money, and, you know, you want to have winners there, really, if you can. Um, that's, that's, that's the days you want winners, a good prize money. And with a, with a horse like this, do you just have to take it day at a time, or can you now plot your way through the rest of the season with him a little bit? He obviously needs to be fresh. I mean, he's quite fragile at home. It's not the easiest in the world to train. Um, so you just pick your races. You know, I'm going to enter him. A month, I think a month today at entry for the um, the beach chase and just see if he's okay for that. And then, you know, you really need to basically go space his races out and have him fresh. But presumably, the idea of taking him to the beach chase is just to have a citrus to, to to his enthusiasm again for for, for going to entry. Yeah, I've always thought, you know, you know, he's, he is 10 in the spring, you know, he's, he's, he's probably got the right profile to be a horse who could run in the national. So if we if we went to, um, you know, jump round, I don't think he's jumping for an experienced horse who jumps really well. I think jumping would be fine. But entry could be a good plan for him in the spring, you know, but you'd want to be going there really, really fresh. You had a nice bumper winner yesterday. You also saw yeah. Grand Sensi run a fine yeah. race in yeah. defeat. Were you How satisfied were you with him? Yeah, he ran very well. He gave yeah. £3 to Nikos also, who they think a lot of. Could you jump the second ass? It would have been very interesting. And the bumper horse confirmation bars is, you know, real nice horse for the future. You know, it's hopefully the first rung of a of a ladder for him upwards. But it's nice horse. He's, he's still there, Paul. Yeah, I am. I'm just yeah. making a plane, so I'm gonna have to go now. Oh, all right, no worries. Thanks very much. Good man. Take Cheers. care. Cheers. Bye. Paul Nichols is boarding a plane because he is running Pick Dory at Otoy this afternoon. I was hoping to get to that, but he was literally just just caught him as he was uh, as he was boarding as you could hear um seat 1a hopefully what did you make of yesterday's badger badger beer richard well i mean uh interesting and uh it's great to see i totally agree with paul that you 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 do have to enjoy your good days because we are, i was saying to owners racing is 90 percent disappointment think mm. of all the injuries and so on so i don't begrudge anyone when they when they you know prepare a horse for a race yeah. and, and win and then really celebrate in good style absolutely the right thing to do um interesting that paul thinks he's you know, potential national horse. Uh, if he thinks that, he probably is a, a potential national horse, and I'm a huge admirer of Paul. What do you admire most about him? You're, you're a good, you're a good student of trainers. Oh, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
he's a ten-time champions trainer, champion mm. trainer, isn't he? Um, you know, he, anyone who just keeps doing that and, and banging it out, he really does have the fire in his belly, and he seems to have it year after year, and he keeps to deliver year after year. No, he's absolutely top class. Uh, and as for the horse, uh, Ian, you, you you know he's had issues, and he's he's already getting on a bit, but he's a horse who hasn't had much mileage, and if there's one man who can keep squeezing the lemon, it's it's Nichols. Yeah, I mean, he's rising 10, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, and he's got very few runs so far, so yeah, if you wanted a speculative anti-post punt for April now, then uh, why not? They're, you know, they're, uh, uh, I, I'm, from what he says, I'm, I'm guessing that it's Beecher Chase, and then maybe mm. not anything at all until uh, April. So, And as not. you know, full Which well. is good. I mean, it, it, to turn up Fresh. At least you know Paul will give him a proper national preparation. He won't get there as an afterthought. He won't. I'm sure he'll think. You know, if he's going to do it, he'll be laid out for it. Let's have a look at the hurdle race that Paul was making reference to there, and that was the race in which his Grand Sancy was second to Fusil Raffles. Fusil Raffles in the Munir suede colours. Our new owners of, of Richards. Uh, this is a race that it's quite hard to look really impressive in because they tend to they tend to sprint from home and I rather felt that Grand Sancy sort of threatened to get a little bit of a march on Fusil Raffles and, and Nicky Henderson was saying that Fusil Raffles might have needed the run a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure how good this is, but time will tell, I guess. We had our best horse at the moment, Le Petro, was entered to run on this. I decided not to run because I thought it would all be a bit too quick for him at weekend. I also wanted a couple more weeks of training into him before he runs, because we want to find out whether he can compete mm. at this level. Uh, and when I saw that, I think we probably did the right thing not to run, but um, I know they, they, they think a lot of the, the winner, I understand. Uh, what, what was your reading of the race? Well, um, he did run as if he slightly needed the race, didn't he? Because he mm. got a, a, looked like he was a, a heading towards verging, blowing up at the uh, running towards the second last. I was rather impressed by him because uh, he, on the way around, jumped really, really well. He did jump well, that horse. And then at the end of the race, when he's starting to get tired, and if Nicky told us he was a few weeks behind, yeah. he still jumped very well. Whether he's uh, a 10, 12 to 1 chance for the champion hurdle, I don't know, but at this stage, all of those Cheltenham races, for various reasons, the big Cheltenham races, do n have no great shape to no. them. I mean, the current champion hurdler isn't going to be there. The one before that is a stable mate of uh, Fuzil Raffles. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you, you, while he doesn't look now as if he's going to be um, taking lots of bounds forwards, a great champion hurdler. You might not have to be. All you have to do is turn up on the day and beat the other horses in the race. So, you know, current standing, the exactly. way he jumped. Yeah, no exactly. Way. To a four-year-old, isn't he? So yeah. it's historically quite tricky for, they always say. But don't you think that, uh, that historically, yeah, yes, but is that quite, I mean, the, the horses are a bit sharper now. The, the, he's a ex-French, isn't he? The flatbred yeah, into it maybe. now. It's not quite the, the odd thing. Yeah, I, d I don't know. I haven't looked close enough at the, at the stats to know. But, I mean, historically, people always said that, didn't they? Yeah. yeah but last year's winner, was a, was he a five-year-old? He was. Yeah. He was a five-year-old. Yeah, yeah, Nicky yeah. Henderson has trained two five-year-olds to win the race yeah, as well. Yeah, right, there you go. So it can be done, most clearly. Recently. So it can be done. And if he ends up being the Seven Barrows leader of the pack going into the champion hurdle, then he's going to be a lot shorter than 10 or 12 to 1. And the man who will be riding him is Daryl Jacob, who joins us on the line now. Morning, Daryl. Good morning, everybody. All OK? Yeah, great, thanks. And I think general positivity about a lot of, a lot of aspects of, of Fuzil Raffles' performance yesterday. What was your read of it? Yeah, look, obviously, from, from our point of view, um, you know, it was, it, was the first, it was the first run. Um, it was mission accomplished yesterday. Um, you know, when I came back last night and I was looking at the analysis on ITV and stuff like that, um, there's a lot of people crabbing them, but I don't see why you can crab them because... You know, Grand Sunsey is a very, very, you know, very, very tough horse. He's a very, very good horse. He's a seasoned campaigner. Um, and at one stage, he was second or third favourite for the for the Supreme last year. Um, and we've gone out there and we've beaten him on, you know, the first time he's encountered that ground. Um, and obviously with Nicky, you know, straight away after the race, he said that he was three weeks short. I, I felt when I went into the paddock, I was looking at him and I was like, oh, God, we are, you know, we are quite burly compared to the, to, to the rest of the horses. Um, and it's only his third third run over over hurdles over you know between here and Ireland. So he's a four year old. He's a big, strong four year old. And uh, you know I think he's beaten a, a genuine um, one five two horse, the season campaigner. Um, and if we can improve on that, you know seven or eight 
£8, um, which I think we can definitely do um, throughout the year. I mean, I don't see him being far off, far away from the 160 mark, and that's got to pop him up into the champion order picture, isn't it? Ian was saying how impressed he was with his jumping in the main yesterday around a quick, trick, uh, quick track like Wincanton. Does he flick over his hurdles to you like the sort of horse that, that belongs in championship grade? Yeah, look, I've been lucky enough. I've right, rode a few horses in, in, the, in the champion hurdle four-year-olds and all that for Simon and Isaac. And, uh, you know, funny enough, it was the first time he sort of encountered that ground. And uh, I actually thought the ground slightly um, blundered his, his jumping yesterday. And, uh, you know, over the last two, when I really needed him when he was good, um, I, needed, I needed him, I needed him to, to jump well, and he did jump very, very well for me. And speaking of horses you've ridden for Simon and Isaac, you must have had half an eye on, on what was going on at Aintree. And, uh, how, how did you feel seeing little Top Notch win his first race over, over hurdles for, for three or four years? Actually, look, it was, it was wonderful. I watched the race in, in, in the paddock with, with um, Nicky afterwards. And, uh, you know, that horse, um, that horse is, um, you know, he's all heart. I mean, he's, he looked beaten. The two horses were swarming him. He had a blow um, going down to the last with Nico. And, uh, you know, he just didn't want to get beaten, did he? Um, you know, it was a it was a real fine performance by horse and jockey, and I must admit, um, I thought Nico gave him an absolute fantastic ride there yesterday. I mean, if any young jockeys were coming through and and wanted to know how to ride a horse, I think he'd look no further than that. I thought it was an absolutely a polished performance from from the saddle from Nico. I wonder if we can just take a look at it while you're talking about it. Uh, top notch at Aintree yesterday, so, so you can tell us exactly why you thought it was was such a good ride. Well, it's just, I mean, just, I mean, I've done a lot of work with Nico. Mm. I probably ride out with him three days a week at Nicky's and Ben Pauling's. And, uh, you know, he's a real fine horseman. And I thought horsemanship was at, at the finest there yesterday. You know, after two outies, from the, from the home bend, he squeezed him along really nicely into the bridle. Um, he's got under the second last. And, uh, you know, he's given the horse a chance after it. He's given him a couple of smacks. He's felt the horses had a blow with him. He's missed the last, and all he's done is he's given the horse a really nice chance that he's sort of ridden him into the bridle again, given the horse a chance, and then from there on the horse has really found his stride and found his rhythm, and he's he, and he's battled the whole way to the line, you know. And I'm guessing yeah, I just thought it was a tremendous ride by by, by Nico and and also a brave brave shout by the horse, you know. And, and I'm guessing with a horse like him who gives so much, you have to be you have to be mindful not to ask for too much, particularly first time first time out. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we obviously me, Simon, and Isaac, and and, and you know, it's, we've always agreed it's never because he's obviously not the biggest horse in the world, and it's never bad to to, to start him off over hurdles to get his confidence. And he, he jumped them hurdles really, really well. Um, you know, he's got a long season ahead of him going back over fences, and it's always nice for a little horses like that to get the confidence on the first run of the season, um, and knowing that he'd need to run. Um, you know, and he, he'll go forward now, and he'll be he'll be on springs the next time he runs. Please God. It's been a good week for your team with those two victories and also the success of Janika that you and I spoke quite extensively about at Exeter the other day. The interesting thing was that there was talk of the Peterborough chase for top notch. There's talk of the same race for, for Janika. So I, I'm guessing, I know you don't particularly like going to the same race with two horses, but what do you think might be the, the, the re relative plans for them? Um, look, we've got, we've got plenty of options now. I mean, obviously, Simon, Isaac and Anthony, they'll sit down and they'll discuss everything like they always do. Um, you know, we've got plenty of options now with Janika, and I thought it was a real good shout by Bromley to to run Janika around a track like Exeter on, on, you know, that sort of ground, because we kind of needed to know where we were with him and what we could do with him this year, and uh, I think we found the answer, possibly. Um, I think we'd get away, and, and I think a, a very wide-open champion chase um, field, I think um, if it did come up soft, I think we've got Janika to cover that division, and also if it comes up good, we've got score AL, so We've got, you know, we've got options now for the two-mile chase, and um, and that's very exciting to have that. All bases covered, and I must ask you how much you're looking forward to getting on a few for the man on my left, Dr. Newland, who's now joined the uh, the string of Munir Swear trainers. We've only got two. <laughs> yeah, look at, I mean, obviously, ridden lots and lots of winners for for Doc over the years, and uh, you know, we've got a, a wonderful relationship. Um, we've got a very good strike race, and uh, yeah, look, it's great that we've got a couple of horses there now with him, and. Uh, you know, please God, um, you know, I think both of them have got plenty of uh, capability to go and win a few races for us. So, uh, look, we're very, very excited about that. And, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll kick on, yeah. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai.
I'm very pleased to be joined by my third guest this morning, a man who has had so much success under both codes and has been on this programme before. Sadly, he comes on again in the wake of a rather unfortunate situation, and that is the withdrawal on veterinary advice, and veterinary compunction essentially, of his great stalwart, Marmello from the Melbourne Cup. He is, of course, uh, Huey Morrison. Huey, good morning. Good morning to you. And you, uh, you are here, you are smiling, your sense of humour is, is broadly intact, but it must have been taxed to the absolute extremity in the last two weeks. Just tell me, <coughs> tell me the story from the beginning, if you like. Well, I suppose it, it's a sort of twofold uh, element of frustration, really, with that um, before the ho all the horses go to Australia, we're, uh, we're checked over by a, a vet sent to us by the RV. They Race in Victoria. Uh, yeah. yeah. They assess it, they trot it, we x-rayed it. The, all, the, all the knowledge goes to the chief vet in Australia, Grace Forbes, and no problem. Off, so off he goes, no problem. In, and he obviously went into quarantine first, no problem. Gets and is, is, is that mandatory for every runner? So every runner is checked and tested before I they go? So, but I assume you so, know, but I think that's the case. And actually the, the vet who looked at him in the yard said, oh, gosh, he trots so much better than some of the others. <laughs> so oh, I felt, you know, he's not a great trotter. We all know that. But... Um, he was assessed, this was, the video was assessed in, in Australia, and Grace Forbes, the chief vet there, who's passed him to race the last two years, uh, passed him, obviously passed him again on what she saw there in England. And then he travels out there, and he's hardly allowed to get off the plane, and they start trotting him up. And, and the Australian vet says he's trotting as well as normally, you know, or shuffly as normally. And so she demands a x-rays and he's already been x-rayed so, so this we, is grace forbes again yeah yeah, yeah. so he's x-rayed he has a full set of x-rays done which are for hit which are for a six-year-old course of good news uh that didn't satisfy her so she then asked for a ct scan and the ct scan has just been purchased by uh racing victoria in conjunction with the university of melbourne uh -huh. so it's a new toy and CT scans are new, really, in terms of worldwide investigative means of the horses. And anyway, the CT scan came back with, you know, a report and images. And within that, and written by somebody who knows what he's talking about in terms of horses, and he makes, interestingly, he makes no recommendations. He doesn't recommend the horses unfit to race. He doesn't recommend that the horses... Uh, more likely to harm itself um, and so suddenly we get emails saying or saying this horse could be taken out it's got incomplete fractures which is you know there's no such thing as an incomplete fracture ask Mark Johnson and if anybody wants it explained better they should read Mark Johnson's article in Kingsley Carrying this month. Uh -huh. So we got our act together very quickly we got all the information sent to Ian Wright, who's probably the leading, world-leading CT scan orthopaedic surgeon in the world, who's done lots of work on CT scans and the results and the effects on the fracturing and things like that. And he said, no, this is an, this is an incomplete fracture. These things called pod lesions, which most older horses have. You know, they, they, they develop them over time. And, the, and his research actually shows that pod lesions create less of a chance of a fracture than more of a chance of a fracture. Anyway, his report um, summarised that the Marmello has a, a less of a chance of, uh, risk, less of risk of fracturing his leg and, uh, and it would be unjustified to race him. So that was sent off to race Victoria and we thought, fine, we're okay. We arrived. Uh, um, the horse worked. Do you mean unjustified not to race him? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So we, you know, I arrived, watched the horse work with Dr. Forbes and her, her boss, and they made a comment. They didn't even see him after the race, they just watched him work. And next thing we know, um, within 24 hours, they've taken him out, which is pretty frustrating for. I think the human element is the worst thing. You know, the, my, my lad who looks and Drunk this, looks after this horse and drunk this horse for three years. Um, he knows the horse. He knows if it's not moving well, it's unsound. 
and, you know, it's basically telling him he doesn't know what he's talking about. Tell me about the the way in which the news was broken to you. So you were out there already by this stage. You had watched the race with the vet. 24 hours later, he was withdrawn. Did they, did they inform you privately first, and did they discuss with you how this might be managed? They, they rang me up uh, on the Wednesday evening. I arrived on the Tuesday. Um, we literally have four hours to get a report together. You know, we had Ian Wright's report, but we, we could, felt we should have got more information, like we could have done other scans and things like that, but they didn't, didn't give us the opportunity to do that. So, you know, we just rung up and said, he's out. And we said, well, we'd like to have seen the report put, put um, by the chief vet to the stewards, but we weren't allowed to see that. And actually, when we did see it, it had no element of Ian Wright's report recommending the horse should uh, remain in the race. Um, there was nothing about risk management, as you know, it was. It wasn't done exactly the way you, democratically. Do you feel there was any element of sensitivity towards you, even even after they'd taken the horse out? Um, not not really, because I wasn't the only horse. They scanned four, I think, four horses in all. Charlie Appleby, we should stress, Ispolini yeah. was withdrawn for similar reasons. Absolutely, and that was, you know, and I'm sure they did their research, and I, th I'm, I think reading between the lines, they had extremely strong case to be remain in the race too. They did. Um, uh, Ed Dunlop's horse and one other Red horse. Verdon. Yeah. And interest, you know, the, the fact that the, the specialist who wrote the report, he did not, he made no recommendation that we should come out. And he actually recommended one of the other horses should go on light exercise. So he, he obviously didn't have a concern about the horse. It's just, it was an, an interpretation weaponized by Grace Forb and the, and the Integrity Department in Australia. How much has this cost you? Well, it won't cost me me much, and I don't. Uh, I think it's you know it's probably cost a, getting on a hundred thousand. That's not the critical. I think the important thing. You mean is, for the, oh, you mean when you say it hasn't cost you much, it's cost the whole ownership group yeah, about a hundred thousand yeah, pounds. You know, somehow it will end up costing me something. Uh, but you know, that's not really the issue. The issue is the human element. You know, the you know the the owner breeders here, uh, Christabel and Ed Goodwin. You know, who you know can't understand it. The Australian owners, who are seriously upset about it because they don't understand it either. And I think, as I said, my travelling head lad Tom Perry, who knows a horse, he knows horses, okay. And now the horses, you know, internationally, people think he's got a fracture in two legs, when he hasn't. Um, how how much does this then worry you when you come to run the horse again? Because we all know any accident can befall any horse at any given time. Well, uh, well I think, yeah, he got... Does that, it, is that now going to prey on your mind well, every course, time you take him to the as races? You, as you know, he's got uh, supposedly two fractures one leg, and he'll probably go and break another leg. But, you know, obviously we hope that doesn't happen. And, if, and as you say, it preys on your mind. It makes it very difficult to run the horse. Um, though we are, you know, uh, we have written to the... David Sykes, the BHA, the chief vet here, mm -hmm. and asking for his views: Should we, can we run in the UK? There is um, a, actually a race in December on the All Weather, uh, because we want to know where we stand. And what's David's response been? His response is: uh, so far is to wait. Um, no, basically, no. What, what he said: I need to view the Vi Victoria Racing's report on the issue which is quite surprising because he was in Australia with Grace Forbes last week. So I can't believe he spent the whole week there without discussing Marmello. So in the, in the kindest and most diplomatic way possible, would you urge him to please give you an answer sooner rather than later? Well, we want a yes or no now because we want to know whether you know, the horses potentially go, could go to stud, he could go racing, and you know, he's got the information and I don't see why he should prevaricate beyond today, really. Uh, Richard, I know, is, has a, a significant interest in this. We were talking earlier about evidence, and here is evidence of a sort. And a lot of people would say that in order for racing safety to be, to be maintained internationally, we need CT scanners and so forth to maintain the, the integrity of the sport and maintain the safety of its participants. But here is clearly a case where there is massive debate between two highly respected professionals as to what this scan actually means. 
and the sufferer, well, there are many sufferers, but all those connected with this horse. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a number of sort of things that seem a bit unsatisfactory with it. Firstly, as soon as you get two professionals giving completely disparate opinions on it, and one says it's fine and one says it's not, we're in a difficult world. If, if they can't make their mind up, if you like, if it's not 100% clear what the clinical judgment should be looking at the scans, that's one thing. But the second thing is the point about, and, and I'm putting a sort of an old medical hat on here, but, you know, we're all advised treat the patient, not the scan. When you start looking at scans and you're trying to make sense of them as to what's going to happen next in terms of fractures, I think you're on pretty thin ground. And the question I would ask is, um, and I, I, I genuinely don't know, is how much evidence there is? How many cases have they looked at? Have they assessed 50,000 normal horses, scanned them, got the reports and assessed those first before they start trying to work out who shouldn't run? Because uh, that's, that's always your basis as a scientist, yeah. isn't it? You have yeah. to have the there's sample no, size no to si understand yeah. the context. There's no science based on the decision there. They've got a new scanner. Mm. You know, Ian Wright has got science. He's got research. He's done years of research in yeah. the market on CT scans yeah. and fractures. Yeah. So he's got the science. The, the decision made by in, in Australia, there's no science there. So it's, you know, it's, it's quite concerning that they're making decisions without the science backing it up. And, and I suppose the wider point, Barty, is that this now is technology that is going to be used by many racing jurisdictions. I mean, I think the, almost certainly similar methods are going to be employed in, in the United States. And we saw before the Breeders' Cup several horses being taken out on, on, on veterinary advice that the trainers didn't necessarily agree with. Chad Brown, Aidan O'Brien, etc. Yes, well, yes, it becomes uh, a very difficult thing to negotiate through uh, as... The, the doctor and the trainer here both said it, it, you've got to have a basis of science for it before you can decide. But also, um, I mean, with Chewitt's horse, he's six, seven, six? Six. Six. So in, in human terms, he's getting on towards our age. You know, it's, we're not talking about a, a, a young Olympic athlete going around who's, who's 100% sound. As you get older, mm. things are going, you're going to get a few knocks and scrapes or whatever. That's just... just just, just life. But here's where it gets difficult, and I, I know Huey will, will understand this, for the Melbourne Cup, who've had a number of fatalities in the last few years and are, are keen to ensure a, a safe running of the race, you have a, a Racing Victoria looking at a, looking at a, a piece of new evidence from a, evidence, quote-unquote, from a piece of new technology, and all it says to them is incomplete fracture. No, it doesn't actually uh, say, no, it doesn't. It does it not say incomplete fracture? No, it's not saying that. It's just being sort of an interpretation by a non-surgical vet who's the chief vet mm. in uh, Race of Victoria is, is drawing that conclusion from a report right. which is d sure. disagreed with by somebody who actually knows but what they're talking taking, about. I accept all that, so take it one step further. So the, 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 the regulatory officer, so the veterinary regulatory officer, not the veterinary surgeon, has deduced that, correctly or incorrectly, from the, from the report, has passed it on to the chief steward and says, right, I'm deducing incomplete fracture in horse X, in this case, mm. Marmello, and they just go, right, incomplete fracture, out. And they don't have any grey area. I, I have complete sympathy with you and, and I have absolutely no doubt that the horse was completely fit to run. But can you understand how a situation like this has now unfolded, given that the eyes of the world are on this race? Well, if, if they really were being consistent uh, and taking, uh, taking the view in terms of the whole aspect of horse welfare in Australia, they would have CT scanned every horse in the race, mm -hmm. they only CT scanned yeah. four potentially. Absolutely. <laughs> and the irony is the, two, the, the fracture of, of Rostropovich this year was in the um, pelvis, mm -hmm. and the CT scanner only covers from the knee down. And the sad fatality last year was of a broken shoulder, so that wouldn't have shown either. So they're actually creating a sort of huge can of worms, because you know, to prevent those, you probably need a bone scan, you might, you might have an MRI scan, but, you know. But would you but even, where do we stop, you know? And would you even prevent them? Is there evidence that actually <laughs> picking that, that you can radiologically pick up early signs and you will reduce the fractures on the course? Is that evidence There's clear? no evidence there. And I think no. the, part, part, part of the, uh, the, the irony of the whole thing is that horses which don't move particularly well in their slower gait mm -hmm. don't fracture, while the ones which move beautifully do fracture. 
Exactly. I, I, that's why I think uh, you that's see the irony. And, and, and so vets coming in and basically. Sort of, you know, you've got to trust the people. You know, we are, we know our horses. And God, do we live and drink and sleep with Marmello? And as I said, Tom Perry rides a horse every day. He knows the horse. If he was, if he felt the horse was in serious, had a serious issue like a fracture, he would be the first person to stop us. None of us want to harm any horse. Um, and it's really a knee-jerk reaction of regulators to the horse welfare issue. Mm. Which and is now becoming a major global issue, and particularly it, heated in yeah, the lead-up to races you know, like the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, there are lots of other issues, you know. Why don't, pe why don't people look at the um, regulators start looking at the racecourse ground a bit more? You know, that's Santa Anita, for instance, you know. You know, we've had, you know, do we ever hear statistics here of where there have been fatalities and is it happened on particular courses and things like that? We see we, it, all the owners seem to be always thrown back to the trainer who actually probably knows his horse better than anybody. And as Dr. Newland's just said, actually, you know, we know our horses. So, we, you know, you don't want to go on scans and things like that. You go on what you know. But there has to be perhaps slightly more stringent and heavier regulation oh. than there was 20, 30 years oh, ago, God. for obvious reasons. Oh, God, but the, yeah, couldn't, I, we couldn't agree agree with you more, but they've got to get it right. They've got to base it on factual evidence. You know, what they should be doing is CT scanning the, virtually every horse in, in Victoria every six months, building up a picture yeah. of how the horses go, and then they will have some science to go on. At the moment, they've got a CT, new CT scanner, which shows detail beyond belief, but the detail actually is being misconstrued because they haven't seen this before. And I think based on the amount of horses they chucked out from the CT scanner, mm. I suspect if they CT scanned the whole field, they would have probably chucked out between Half 50. Half a dozen of them. Uh, oh, no, no, I think 50 to 75 yep, percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where is Marmello now? He is um, cantering around Werribee in, uh, in, in Victoria still, having a very nice time. He'll have to come back. To, he's coming back to the cold wet on Thursday. Luckily, he loves traveling. You know, I wish I could travel as well as he does. <laughs> and you're waiting for an answer from the BHA and then... And, I mean, if you entered him tomorrow, would you be able to run him here? You just don't know. I don't know. You know, we're doing the... Well, we feel the sensible thing, asking the question before we plan, our, plan ahead. And, you know, the fact that David Sykes was over in Australia accompanying Grace Forbes and you know he was there at the trot up so he could see all the horses trotting up which I did which was interesting in itself you would thought that half the point of him going there is mm. to compare notes on issues such as this. Um, I know you are a massive fan of the race or have been a massive fan of the race um, is this it now are you and Melbourne done? No 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 we love the Melbourne Cup and uh, we're just you know we're, it's just a sort of issue of an integrity department which has basically nobody controlling them. And the rest of people in Australia, Racing Victoria, who are absolutely fantastic, look after us really well. And we've got a couple of horses at the moment owned by the Australian team, Aussie Kerr and his friends, um, in training here. And I'm sure we'll be going back with them next year. Well, that's good to hear. That is good to hear. So it's a question of no hard feelings in one respect. You know, you just you've got to understand how regulators and integrity behave. They're more interested in looking good than actually looking at the science. So, you know, you look at it, this country. You know, we got the children issue. We have the flu issue. They, you know, two, you know, two crashing mistakes made, basically not on the science. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome back on this Remembrance Sunday. You're watching Luck on Sunday. We're with you until half past 11. Delighted to say that Ian Bartlett and Huey Morrison are still with me. Dr. Richard Newland is off to Sandown to saddle abolitionist in the big chase today. And we've all been joined by one of racing's foremost authors and historians, writer of the celebrated 1990 work, The Druids Lodge Confederacy, which charted the work of one of the most extraordinary training and gambling operations um, that horse racing has ever seen. He has uh, written extensive books on the history of Manton and Beckhampton, two of the great training centres, and he has recently released this intriguing work, Jewel, How Lord Hastings Stole the Pocket Venus and How Her Fiancé Was Avenged. It is a fantastic story. 
in and of itself, but it raises so many more intriguing aspects of how racing was in the Victorian age. Paul Matthew, good morning. Good morning, Nick. And lovely to see you here as well. well thank you for having me. Uh, you've written so many interesting and important books on horse racing, but not, not the norm, dare I say, some of which I've, uh, I've got behind me. You're, you're always looking at it from a slightly different angle. Are you inspired just by, by things that have, that have interested you along the way? I, I guess so. It's like finding a, a you know, brightly polished pebble on a beach. There's some aspect of a story that you think, gosh, that one would be interesting. And really, that's how the Druids Lodge book started out. For those who aren't familiar with the, with the Druids Lodge Confederacy, I suspect it will always be your, your most celebrated work. People talk about it an awful lot. And the sheer audacity of, of, of what the Druids Lodge Confederacy achieved. For those who aren't familiar, just, just give us a, a brief praise. Well, it was a, it was a stable set up from scratch, built from the ground upwards, uh, right in the heart of Salisbury Plain, about as isolated as you could be. And the isolation itself was an objective keep it far away from touts and snooping punters. And they built a stable there with no windows on the outside walls, so everything looked mm -hmm. inwards. The lads were locked up at night so they couldn't give stable secrets away. And the whole raison d'etre was to land gambles. Mm -hmm. And they laid horses out sometimes for a couple of years, and then they would launch them in the, typically a race like the Cambridgeshire. And they won unimaginable sums of money. And it was a sort of league of gentlemen. Um, and they had the bookies absolutely by the throats for a decade or so. And remind us of, of exactly when this was. Uh, this was at the turn of the last century and the early years of the, well, the early, very early 1900s. People now would think that was quite extraordinary that any, uh, any successful um, achievement of such an ambition would be difficult enough now, let alone 150 years ago. Uh, in truth, was it easier then at the turn of the uh, of the 20th century? I'm sure it was, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons that the two gentlemen on my left will know well. Um, stewarding was extremely haphazard in those days. Sometimes it has to be said the stewards had probably had a very nice lunch and they didn't watch the race from the same place, so they were seeing different events. Um, and there was no camera patrol. And the form books and all the other guides were rudimentary by comparison with what we have today. But I think the crucial thing is there were no pictures. And so you could hook a horse for several runs and hardly anyone would notice, and particularly what they specialised in. Their, their biggest ever gamble was a horse called Hackler's Pride. Mm. And they ran Hackler's Pride in multi-runner sprint handicaps. You know, the sort of 20, 25 runner cavalry charges that probably keep Ian awake at night, <laughs> figuring, out all the, figuring out all the colors. Um, and it's quite easy to bury a horse in one of those races, particularly if you don't have the subsequent tools of a video recording where you yeah. can play it as many times as there are horses in the race to see what happened. And so there would Hackler's Pride be at the back of the Stewart's Cup, running on demurely far too late. And then they spring her over a mile in the Cambridgeshire, and lo and behold, there's a completely different horse on show. So the, uh, the one thing that strikes me through all your books is exactly how much money was in the game and exactly how much money was bet as well. It really was a phenomenal punting sport. Yes. A uh, hundred years ago. Yes, absolutely. And I, mean, it, I suppose it comes out fairly clearly in, uh, in Duel mm. that uh, Harry Hastings, the fourth Marquis, was betting in telephone numbers. Yes. Um, I mean, in his case, it was... And the aristocrats had that kind of money to spend they did. as well, had that disposable they cash. They did. And they were dissipating capital. Mm. You know, they were dissipating family fortunes. Um, the characteristics of the people, like, say, the Druids Lodge Quintet, they were wealthy people, sure, but they weren't, you know, vastly wealthy the way that Harry Hastings was. Well, who would be the nearest modern equivalent to, say, the, the Druids Lodge Quintet? I, I'd love some input from my left. I don't think there is one. Know, I suspect. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it's possible today. Probably goes on all betting goes on in Malaysia or something like that. Yes. Is, is, it, is, it, a, is it a question of just su superior organisation? I think they had it relatively easy. 
you know, in terms of they weren't under any scrutiny, mm. in terms that they built this fortress on Salisbury Plain and, you know, there wasn't any BHA or jockey club person coming to visit them and see what they were up to. Um, you know, it was all... It was all very enclosed, and every now and then they would march out like a little army and um, have it off. And as, as far as far as there's a regime in, in training yards are, are concerned, looking at what you saw in the in the Druids Lodge Confederacy and in your, in your research for that, to what extent did that inform you when you were when you were writing about Manson and Beckhampton, two of the great training establishments that are still going to this day? Yes, they, well, they had different raison d'être. I mean, certainly the, the old Alec Taylor, who, who built Manton in 1870, um, he bet, and they did bet, because yeah. that was the only way they could accumulate capital. But it wasn't, per se, a gambling yard. And the same way with, um, with Beckhampton. It's had, sure, one or two people in there who've been punters, but it's not a gambling yard. Um, you know, it's about getting good horses and bringing them on slowly and winning good races with them. You know, that's what Backhampton is about. Whereas Druid's Lodge was purely and simply um, a betting operation. You know, they had horses to run to land gambles. This country is, is unique in a sense in, in, in its historic nature of the stables. Um, how much have you been helped through all your books by the, by the fact that most of these places still exist and, and they've had custodians who've, who've, who've kept records and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. Yes, it is. There's no question, you know, when d doing a book about Beckhampton, you know, R Roger and Claire Charlton have kept an awful lot of archive material. Um, so you get a leg up and you also get a sense of the tradition and the history. Um, the Druid's Lodge, um, when it was finished, it was finished. Mm. You know, they all went their separate ways. The gallops were sadly ploughed up for, you know, to plant potatoes for the, to feed the army during the war. And it, there was never any prospect of it coming back together, although there was a brief reincarnation afterwards with horses like Scottish Union and trainers like Noel Cannon. But uh, that's all finished. It's now a polo ground. And tell me about how the, how the inspiration came about for Jewel, the, the new book. Well, I'd been thinking about, as an as obvious sequence to the, um, uh, to the first three books, of doing something on Danebury mm -hmm. and the Day family. Uh, but the more I looked at it, the less enthusiastic I became, because they <laughs> well, were... <laughs> the, book, the book tells you why, because the Day family don't come out of this very well. Uh, they didn't come out of life very well. <laughs> they, they were a pretty horrible group of people. Mm. I mean, master trainers. The, the accomplishment of, um, of John Day Jr., the last of the days, in 1867, he trained 146 winners. And that was a record that stood for 120 years. And there are not many sporting records that last 120 years. And then Henry Cecil came and kicked the door mm. down and trained 180. But that was 120 years that Day's record stood. He was a master trainer, but their interests were always inwardly focused. Mm. You know, they were looking to make money for themselves um, at the interests of everybody else. And at the expense of everybody else. At the expense of everybody yeah. else, yeah. Yeah. And uh, to we're totally lacking scruples. I think you'd have had to search very hard for a scruple in Danebury, yes. So you didn't want to make them the focus of your book, um, but they are still an uh, integral part of it because they were the people that trained well, one tra half of these horses. The train for Harry Hastings, yeah. yes, uh, which was his great misfortune. I mean, I don't know, he had such a clear self-destructive bent that it would have emerged in some form anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even if he'd gone to a, a, a thoroughly sensible horse manager like, say, Captain Machel at Newmarket. Um, but the fact is that the days, of course, um, he was manna from heaven. In, in his early 20s, he had a string of 50 horses. He was the largest owner in Britain, and he had all the money to go with it. So he was ripe to be taken, and they took him. He was a pigeon for the plucking. <coughs> yeah. And do you, how important do you think it is, Paul, now that... that racing as it is today has has this context has this rich tapestry has a a history that people understand to to give it meaning i i think that everyone secretly likes a little whiff of gunpowder in their racing 
Yeah, I mean, the chap in the betting shop who sees his fancy go down would much prefer to believe that the jockey had pulled it than that he'd made a serious error of judgment, (laughs) you know, got the wrong one. Um, And I think, yeah, the tapestry of the backstory of all the great gambles and the skullduggery, um, it just adds a richness, yeah. And uh, Huey's nodding away sagely to your your left. Nowadays, it's it's deemed inappropriate to have a coup. Even if it's done, you know, within reason, you know, you have a horse, you just don't run for six months and let it develop and you find the right ground, you you know, the owner has a bit of a punt on it and it's considered as coup. It's sort of somehow you're not allowed to do that, which seems, you know, uh, you know, the punter does like to think he knows best. Yeah. And uh, it's fine to land a coup, isn't it, as long as you haven't broken any rules? Well, I'm not sure. I seem to have read a few times recently that, it, that oh no, we've stopped this sort of multiple bet happening, you know, accumulator yeah. across the country when somebody had one in Ireland, one in England, or something. Yeah. Well, you, you raise you raise, of course, one of our most celebrated guests on this program, <laughs> Mr. Barney Curley, who, who occupied about an hour of this and was and was intriguing and and extraordinary in equal measure. And I suppose he might be the nearest comparison to. Uh, to say the the ingenuity of the uh, of the of the first book of the Druids Lodge. Yes, I mean it, it, I, I, for a moment there, I thought you were going to uh, bring the name of Harry Hastings in alongside Curley. Um, you didn't, and you're right not no. to because that polar opposite. No, exactly. You know, Curley is incredibly patient, disciplined, focused, mm, which is what they were. Which is, yeah, which is what the Druid's Lodge people were. But Hastings, on the other hand, was just like a mad woman's custard. You know, I mean, he would <laughs> bet on anything. <laughs> and did. And lost. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.